following sermon is by Andy Lake, the senior pastor of Liberty Bible Church. This program, Grow in Liberty, is the preaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church in Vienna, Ohio. Liberty Bible Church places a priority on the Word of God over all else and has a desire to share truth with believers and non-believers alike. Our prayer is that as people tune in, they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Join us as we grow together through the Word of God. Father, great and wonderful things you have done. So marvelous that our mere words cannot even express. So, Father, as we pause this morning to remove any distraction that might be plaguing us, Father, I ask that you would be seen. Father, for the children in the next room, I pray, God, that you would work in their midst and in their hearts. That, Father, you would reign in their lives. Not because it's something that we want for them, but it's because we have actually seen them come to this realization themselves. Father, we don't want to just push our own agendas. But we want, Father, for these children to see you glorious, see you high and lifted up. To believe that you are, and that you are the rewarder of those that diligently seek you. Father, this is the only reason we come today, to worship you. God, would you break our hearts this morning? Would you call us to a closer walk with thee? And Father, as we surrender more and more of ourselves, we would become more and more like the image of your dear son. So, Father, help us in this, we pray that this morning, as we open up your word, that you would impart to us a little bit of heaven so that we can see you more clearly and to see ourselves in your care. I pray these things in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, open your Bibles, if you would, and remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and once there, you can put your finger or a notepad or something in 1 Corinthians 13, and go back to John chapter 15, to 1 Corinthians 13, and John chapter 15. The typical attitude of many church members in this world can be distressing. You see a lot of people coming to church with the thought of what's in it for them, and then many church attendees attempt to judge the others in the church or the deacons, the pastor, based on what they think rather than factual evidences, or people think that others are judging them when they truly aren't. 
And so there's a part that is missing from the modern church that I believe was important enough for both Christ and the Apostle Paul to preach about in the early church. Look with me, if you would, at John chapter 15, starting in verse number 9. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. If ye abide in my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I commanded you. Thank you. You may be seated. Jesus here in John chapter 15 is following up on a statement that he said in John chapter 13. Uh, shortly after the washing of the disciples' feet, he says to them, now love one another as I have loved you. But he said it in a way that was kind of interesting. He says, a new I give you, that you love one another the way I have loved you. And so here we have in John chapter 15, a sort of a refresher course, course or a reminder uh, of what he is saying. And he's, he's, he basically puts it this way in verse 12 of chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he follows it up in, in verse 13 this way. Greater love hath no man than this, but a man lay down his life for his friends. And so the question of what is new about the commandment of Jesus to love, because, I mean, we can go back into Deuteronomical law and see um, that love was commanded there to love your neighbor as yourself. So what's different about this new commandment that Jesus is putting forth? Well, he says it this way. He says, thinking about yourself and love others the way I have loved you. And when Christ loves us, he loves us with a sacrificial giving of himself, laying himself down love. Here's how we understand if we are loving people the way Christ loved us is are we taking ourself out of the equation? Well, I can't love that individual because the way that they have treated then you are not loving the way Christ loved because you're more concerned with the way you have been treated and your personal feelings in the matter. People don't want to hear that. But the call of Christ to to love others is irregardless of what you feel, what you think, or what even they have done to you. He says, love one another the way I have loved you. Remember something. Christ went to the cross for all those who were unlovable. And so the love that we are called to by Jesus Christ himself is to love the unlovable. It's easy to love someone you like, isn't it? 
It's difficult to love someone you don't really care for. Oh, man, he smells funny. I can't love him. He looks funny. I can't love him. He sounds funny. I can't love him. He acts weird. I can't love him. And you just talked about the pastor. You haven't even got to the rest of the church yet. (laughs) It's the only amen I'm going to get from that corner tonight. We need to understand what love is. We need to understand this command from God. And, and some may say, okay, Pastor, I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure that I'm connecting the dots here. How in the world are you getting the attitude of church membership from this? Because this is exactly what he commanded. And the attitude of the church ought to be to follow the commands of Jesus Christ. The attitude of the church should not be about philanthropy. The attitude of the church should not be about doing good for, uh, for those less fortunate until, until it is love. You see, we get a lot of things backwards. We get so many things. We, we make the, the means the end. The end, my friend, is always going to have to be the love of Christ constraining us. The means is the means, not the end itself. But so often we are, if we're not careful as a church, we can very quickly be wrapped up in what we do in order to, to produce a certain effect that we forget about the effect we're trying to produce and only focus on what we're doing. We're the kind of church that we teach a lot. We're the kind of church that has a lot of programs. Or we're the kind of church, no, stop. Before we ever are known for anything, this church ought to be known as a loving church. First and foremost, and until we get that part right, there's no reason to go any further. The typical attitude of many church members can be distressing. And it's not new. Jesus had to tell his disciples back here in John chapter 15, this is how I want you to act. Think about it. He had just gotten done exposing who was going to betray him. You think they needed to hear about love at that moment? As you read the different gospel accounts, it's, it's, it's always pointing to Judas, the one who betrayed. Judas, Iscariot, not the other one. Judas, not this, not... They wanted to make sure to be specific about which one. You think there was some animosity toward this man? And Jesus says, I want you to love. Don't forget that when he went through and he was uh, washing the disciples' feet, you remember one of them that was there? It was Judas. Would you have washed Judas' feet? Knowing he was getting ready to turn you over to the guards? This is the love that Jesus calls us to. This is the love that we are, as a church, to embrace. As believers, we are to embody. Sadly, many times someone enters a church building accusing people of judging them, or perhaps the opposite is true, and certain people enter the church with the purpose of judging. I've heard both complaints. I've seen both sides where you've got that one individual that comes and they've got their notebook out. All right, preacher, I can't wait to pick this one apart. 
You got the ones that uh, show up to the church and they're looking across the aisle going, mm-hmm. Can't believe they had the audacity to show up. Hmm. I didn't just say that because Jason just walked in. <laughs> we have some people who walk in and all they do is they look around and they're worried that someone's saying something about them. They looked at me funny. They must think this. Or they said this about something. Maybe they meant me. Or they said, no, 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 stop. I want you to understand both lack love. To look around and wait for the opportunity to judge the brethren, I am holy and thou thou art not, is a lack of love. To look around thinking everyone's talking about you means you only love yourself. That's a lack of love as well. Both are wrong. And here we come to a portion of Scripture in John 15 that is reiterated over here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, you've had your finger there. It's probably you've sweated a spot in your Bible. You can flip it back over now. Look at 1 Corinthians 13 with me. Love so often is a misunderstood matter. You've heard it said that love is not a noun, but it's a verb. Love is something, not something that we feel. Rather, it's an emotional response. Uh, love is an action. We've heard it that way. Something that we do out of choice, not necessarily out of want. This is love. We do things based on not what is desired as much as what is Right, right. As we look at this chapter here, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, uh, sadly, um, so often this passage in context is taken completely out. Sadly, the, uh, this passage is only applied to marriage. However, it is actually to be the theme of the Christian life. We hear this passage read at a lot of weddings. We hear this passage quoted at a lot of uh, um, uh, marriage conferences. And when we get into uh, premarital counseling or marital counseling, a lot of times we jump to this chapter. And, and that's good. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. But we need to understand the context of what the apostle is writing here. Look with me, if you would, verse number one. It says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Pause for station identification. Charity in our vernacular is to give up for someone else. That's why here it is translated, the word agape love is translated as charity. This kind of love will cost you something. Continue. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. 
doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. Charity never faileth. For whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. I think it's important for us to understand what it is that he is calling us to do here. Every mother understands that when she is tired and sleepy, but the baby in the other room needs feeding in the middle of the night, every mother understands what it means to love. That screaming, that wailing and gnashing of teeth in the other room. And yet they still get up. Every husband that is worth his salt understands what it means when they have gotten up, and you notice I did say if he's worth his salt, after she has gotten up night after night after night after night, and you know that she's exhausted instead of going, i got to get up in the morning and go to work. She's, she's okay. They put their hand on their wife and say, I got it this time. No matter how tired they are, love is a decision that is being made. Understanding the context here, this, uh, Tertullian says of this passage, that this passage, as it's written, is uttered with all the force of the Spirit. So I want you to understand it that way. Here's what is being said to us. He, uh, 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 Volkner says it this way, an oratorical figures which illuminate the chapter have been born spontaneously in a heroic soul, burning with the love of Christ and placing all things lower in this divine love. Understand where it lines up in this book. Realize the way that 1 Corinthians 13 is being written. Notice the placement. The book of 1 Corinthians, we've talked about this before. The book of 1 Corinthians is a book set out to correct things that were wrong in this church. Corinth had gotten it way out of line. This is a first century church shortly after Jesus left. So we can't blame Paul on this one. Paul's trying to fix it. They're, well, it's only because of those early church leaders. Are you kidding me? By the time we get to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, uh, you know, you can go back and talk to the people that watched Jesus ascend into heaven. You can go back and talk to them. They're still alive, most of them. So this is not long-term uh, after Jesus had died and rose again. 
This is not very long after the ascension. He's having to correct these things. It's important to note that everything being said in, uh, is in address to the issues that's faced by this church. For example, chapters 1 through 4 deal with the divisive nature found in the church due to this party spirit. Some choosing sides based on their personal tastes uh, because they like a certain person over another person. The whole idea of Apollos, and some are of Paul and some are of Apollos, they were choosing, well, I like this preacher better than I like this preacher. I'm one of these guys. I'm a convert of Paul. No, I'm a convert of Apollos. And they were putting these two men up, and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. This divisive nature ought not to be in the house of God. It's it's similar to if you go in today, many people, it's like, so are you a Calvinist or are you an Armenian? And if you're one that I'm not, we cannot get along. You sit on that side and I'll sit on this side and the twain shall never meet. Some people take it with the whole Republican Democrat thing. You're a what? You're going to hell. That's honestly the way people act. And Paul's saying, Stop. Quit this divisive discussion, these divisive talks. Knock it off. Focus on Christ. Chapters 5 through 6 deal with the scandals in the church from gross uh, impurity to lawsuits within the church. They were suing one another. (laughs) They were not respecting one another's marriage boundaries. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, what you're doing is wrong. Chapter 7 deals with marriage because there were some within the church who thought that those who were married were wasting God's opportunities. And then there were others within the church that thought that those who were single were wasting God's opportunities. And Paul's saying, knock it off. By the time we get to chapter 8 through chapter 10, Paul deals with the liberty that the Christians enjoy. Apparently, people were criticizing some for their liberties while they ate, while others were challenging even the liberties of the pastor, and they were what they were allowed to do. We're allowed to do this, but the pastor's not allowed to do that, and blah, blah, blah. Then he defends, after he defends this liberty, he wanted them to simply live for Christ, not the rules. Then we jump, let's jump over for a minute, over to chapter 15. He deals with what the gospel itself is. It's prominence in the church. Please quit hitting that light switch. The prominence within the church. First, the gospel is to be prominent. Second, the second prominent thing uh, ought to be uh, the basis, the basis of the, uh, of the gospel being prominent, the scriptures. Then the evidence he deals with that they were seen. These aren't just uh, uh, anything going on. These are evidence within the church. These are seen things. And then the program of revelation. Understand, with finally looking at the power of the resurrection, Paul begins to make his conclusion. Closes the book. He deals with the collections of finances because apparently there was a bunch of arguments and discussion there. Well, we shouldn't be doing this. Well, we should be doing What are they doing? Why do we have to give? And so he deals with that. 
But notice chapters 12 to 13. Notice what's taking place in those three chapters. In chapter 12, he addresses the reasoning for the gifts. And the reasoning for the gifts, jump back to chapter 12 with me if you would. Look at verse 28, actually 27. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Can you just stop for a minute? Let me just throw this one out there. This one's free. It won't cost you a dime. He just asked, are all speaking in tongues? And so you go into a place where they say you got to speak in tongues in order to be saved. Take them here. No. Don't go jumping down that that rabbit hole. Uh Uh-uh. Ain't happening. That one's free. Look at verse 31. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I you a more excellent way. Chapter 12, he deals with unity amid diversity. That's beautiful. Sure, we actually get our word university. It's where a pluribus unum out of the many one. It's this idea that We all have differing gifts, differing abilities, but we come together for one purpose. One purpose. That's chapter 12 for you. In chapter 14, Paul reveals the proper exercising. Look over at chapter 14 and go to the very end. This sums up chapter 14, the last verse, verse 40, let all things... Be done decently and in order. And so you have chapter 12, which introduces to us the gifts and why we have all the different kinds of gifts. Chapter 14 talks about how we ought to employ gifts and how things ought to be done decently and in order. So chapter 13, right between the two, gives to us the motivation. Remember chapter 12 ended with, now I show you a better way, a more excellent way. And so he gets in here to the idea of love. I think as far as 1 Corinthians 13 is concerned, or 1 Corinthians is concerned, the number one thing that they were lacking is addressed right here in chapter 13. Notice it. When there are divisions in the church, there's no love. When there's arguments over uh, over who's allowed to do what and who's not allowed to do what, there's no love. When there are disagreements and there are factions and splits and divisions and anger and and lawsuits and and stealing other people's uh, uh, spouses or other people's property and and doing there's no love. And so by the time he gets here, just as I told you a little bit ago, Tertullian said that this passage is uttered with all the force of the Spirit. Here's what's happening. He gets from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 12, and he gets to the place where he says, listen, love one another. And this chapter 13 is a treatise on wake up. You're suing him because you don't love him. 
You're stealing his wife because you don't love him. You don't like that guy's camp. You rather this guy's camp because you don't love him. Would you please love one another? Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Don't tell me Paul taught a different gospel. Don't tell me Paul's not in line with Jesus. You see, the focus in the church of Corinth was apparently more on what people thought of them than on what was right. They were concerned with how well they did it. It was a little focus on the love of others. They wanted to know the people thought of how good a job they did at something or maybe their teaching or their praying or what have you. You know, nobody patted me on the back for the way I prayed today. Well, nobody liked my, my delivery. I sang a special 14 years ago and nobody still has yet to thank, thank me for it. Well, maybe there's a reason they didn't thank you for it. I don't know. Paul wants to stress that the gifting and all these abilities are of no value without love. It doesn't matter how pretty you can sing. It doesn't matter how well you can teach. It doesn't matter how much money you put in the plate. It doesn't matter how you feed poor. It doesn't matter any of that if you don't have Love. So let's look at a few things here as far as what love does and what love does not do. Let's start with what love does not do. Start there. First, love does not envy. Doesn't. Somebody else gets something that you want. Somebody else has something that you want. Somebody else gets more opportunities than you get. Love does not envy. If you are envious of that and that bothers you, the other people get more than you get, then that is not love. It's not. Because God's word lets us know love does not envy. There's no room for envy in the house of God. There's no room for envy as we come together in worship. We do not wish them less and ourselves more. Love does not do this. If anything, love goes the opposite, wishes ourselves less and them more. That's love. Willing to lay down and give up so that they can. You remember Paul? I'm reminded of his words. I would wish myself accursed if the nation of Israel, whoa, The average is give me more and them less. Love also does not flaunt itself, doesn't point to itself. Understand, there's no room for bragging in the house of God. There's no room for that. None. Love is not puffed up. In other words, love is opposed to pride. It's opposed to it. No vanity, no amount of arrogance and pride. Mm -mm. Love is humble. Get that. It says it does not behave itself unseemly or it's not improper, in other words. You know, there were people in the church apparently concerned with their own personal feelings rather than the feelings of others in the church. What does it mean to behave oneself unseemly? 
Let's think about that for a minute. Have you ever gone out to eat? And the people at your table, there was one individual at your table. You were kind of embarrassed. You were sitting at that table with that individual because of the way they treated the waiter or waitress. If you've never been there, everybody else at your table probably felt that way. See, it doesn't behave itself that way. Because it's not improper. Love thinks of other people. Well, there's other people at this table. Maybe I'll just keep my remarks to myself. There's other people at this table, and they don't want spit in their food, so I won't yell at the waiter or waitress. That's love. You ever go out to eat with me? Please keep your comments to yourself. I like my burger goober-free. self-seeking. In other words, love gives and doesn't grasp. What's in it for me? Love doesn't ask that. I don't get anything. Love doesn't say that. Love is others-focused. Does it's not easily provoked or does not quickly resort to anger? Understand that love restrains itself, doesn't give in uh, to those emotions, and doesn't give others control of their actions. I had a young man at our last church, God love him, he was forever getting in trouble. Every single Sunday, I had to have a sit down with him. And he would get, so, well, this person said this and I got mad. Well, this person did this, and I got mad. Well, this person, I said, so you're telling me everybody else in this building controls you? No, I control myself. Well, I said, you're, they are the reason you're sitting here? So you gave them control? See, love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. Love looks at other people and gives way. Love thinks no evil. Ooh, that's a big one. That one we could probably spend the entire morning on. You know, the, the terminology for thinking evil is basically replaying of accounts, keeping a ledger. Well, I don't do that. Uh, the, the best way to describe thinketh no evil would be like watching ESPN the day after a big game, and you see that one play or maybe you're watching Fox News or MSNBC or CNN or whatever you choose to watch, and you see that debate, and they replay it, and then they say it from this angle. Well, did you hear what he said when he said this, or did you notice how he said it? Do you notice the look on his face when he said it? That's replaying it. You get that highlight reel, and they go over it and over it and over it and look at it from different angles and different viewpoints. How many times have you gone to bed after an argument with someone and you lay there still stewing, and you think about, what well, this is how I should have responded. And, you know, I didn't really think about it, but when they said this, they had their arms crossed. They had their legs folded. And then when, I bet you this is what they meant. And the whole time you're laying there just stewing. I can't believe they'd say something like that. Love doesn't act that way. If you're stewing over things and you're replaying those things in your mind, you can't say you love that individual because love doesn't do that. 
and it does not rejoice in iniquity. This one's difficult because it's tied in with the next one. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. So understanding what it means. How many times have you waited and you knew someone was doing something wrong and you couldn't wait till they got caught? Love doesn't do that. Oh, finally they fail. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. Finally, they're getting their just desserts. I knew it. I was waiting for it, and I couldn't wait for it. That's rejoicing in iniquity. And love does not do that, my friend. But it does rejoice in truth. Connecting the two, going hand in hand, while our heart aches, feel this, when a fellow believer falls, understand that that is a fellow believer, another one of God's children who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Why in the world would we celebrate their fall? But we can rejoice the truth has won out. Oh, thank God. Thank you for getting their attention and putting a stop to it. Please call them back in. Lift them back up. Get them back on the straight and narrow. We don't rejoice that they got theirs. But we do rejoice that God is doing something in their life now. He's going to use it. Thank you, God, for using this situation. Use it however you can. You see, we would rather see the truth come out and sin stopped than to see sin covered up and the sinner continue therein. Hmm. We sang a little bit ago, great things he hath taught us, great things he hath done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. Through who? Jesus. And he's teaching that individual something right now. And we can rejoice in that and say, praise the Lord. What else does love do? Well, love suffers long. In other words, it's patient. Patience should be the mark of the church of God. People say, don't pray for patience. Let me let you in on a secret. I pray for patience. And I pray for your patience too. Because I know, I know I'm a lot to handle, and I need your patience. And so maybe, just maybe, God is trying to teach you patience by having me as your pastor. I don't know. Patience is a good thing to pray for. Love is kind. This word is often explained by generosity. Kindness places others' needs as more important, gives when it can, and it is a mark of the grace of God. Notice these next few because they kind of build on one another. Love bears all things. 
This is where difficulty often comes in. It's one thing to be helpful, but when other people have problems, that is for them to deal with, not for me, right? That's their problem, not mine. Love bears those problems with them. That's your cross to bear, not mine, but I can come alongside and help it up. Remember Aaron and Ur? Moses had to keep his arms up. When his arms were up, the children of Israel prevailed. When they came down, they started to lose. He had to put them back up, and he got tired. Sometimes, I'm letting you know, sometimes it is difficult to be the one to keep the hands up. Those who love me come alongside and grab hold of that arm and help hold it up for me. Why? Not because I'm anything, but because he deserves their love of me keeping my hands up. You can do that for one another. This does not mean that we turn a blind eye to anyone's faults. Rather, we aid them in overcoming them with the grace of God ruling in their life. Catch this one, because it goes right along with it. Bears all things, believes all things. What does it mean to believe all things? That's not naivety. It's not saying that we become naive in the, the, uh, the way we approach things or the, uh, the issues that are, that are at hand. That's not what's being said here. Believing all things goes more along the lines of expecting the best in people. Well, they're not going to do it right this time. They never have done it right before, so why in the world would we expect them to do anything different? Because I believe that the Holy Spirit of God is going to work on their life, and this time I believe if they will submit to God and His Spirit, things are going to be different. That's what it means to believe all things. And hopes all things goes right along with it. You ever think about it? Someone says, well, what are we supposed to do in this situation? Hope for the best. Hope for the best. See, I believe the best in people. I know we're all sinners. Now, this is, the, you know, are we born naturally evil or naturally good? We're born naturally evil. You don't believe that? Next time you're around a baby that keeps trying to grab hold of something, and you keep saying no, and they try to grab, no, try to grab, no. If that baby was 18 years old and had the strength of a full-grown man, they would kill you where you stood to get what they wanted. We're naturally evil. We have to be taught to do right. But those who are born again by the Spirit of God have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. I believe the best. And I hope for the best. And because I believe the best, and because I hope for the best, I am willing to endure through the worst. That's love. Believing the best in people and being hopeful that they will uh, do the right thing causes us to be willing and ready to endure with patience. Again, this is not excusing anything. This is loving. And realize, love never fails. Never. Think about it 
as we move on here. Think about what love causes. Look at verse 9 of chapter 13 here. Actually, go back to verse 8. Charity never faileth. For whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Understand that church programs will run their course. They do. It's a natural thing. Realize that teachers, preachers come and go. The knowledge that I might have will one day disappear. My voice could leave my body tomorrow. I may not have the ability for much longer to preach, to teach. I could have an accident and lose my knowledge and my memory altogether. And one day, should the Lord's return be later, I'm going to be dead. But love continues. Love will propel things forward. And I believe that as we look at this, there were certain people who were puffed up about their gifts and their abilities, their, uh, their knowledge, and they knew this and they could do that and they had this ability and they had this type of a talent. And Paul said, stop. You can think back through time. And the people who are on your mind and on your heart the sweetest are the ones who loved you. Dear lady in my, my parents' church went home to be with the Lord this week. I don't remember what kind of voice she had. I don't remember any of the lessons she taught in Sunday school. But what I do remember is every Sunday she would tell me, I'm praying for you. <laughs> Even when I was living a life far from the Lord. Say, I'm praying for you, honey. God has you. And I'm praying. That's love. And I'm here to tell you, she would give me that message. At times, I wasn't lovable. And most people would have said, well, can't wait for him to get his. That's love. You see, gifts, intellectual abilities, they're temporary. These gifts can and should be used for God's purpose. And they are of value, but they are temporary. Know that. You see, here's what happens because of love. Here's, the, here's what comes of it. Faith 
becomes trust without misgivings. Hope becomes expectation without uncertainty. And love is adoration without coldness and affection without interruption. That's love. You want to know what makes your faith become trust? Love. You know what makes your hope turn to expectation? Well, I hope he does it right. I expect him to do it right. Love. Let's examine ourselves for just a moment. Realize that church membership is not about being part of a social club. Rather, it's about others. You know, there are many people within the world today who will not join a church because they realize that it means more than just benefits and such. They won't join because of the others. Many of that, they honestly will tell you that if you ask them. The church of Corinth was in a hot mess. And the biggest reason that the church of Corinth had this mess was because they had neglected the love of God and others. So when we come to chapter 13, Paul gives his treatise on this is why you're in the trouble you're in. This is why you have divisions. This is why you're suing one another. This is why you're taking one another's wives. This is why you're acting the way you are and puffed up about turning a blind eye. You don't love. If they loved one another, they would not have allowed unaddressed sin. They would not have been so quick to take one another this, to court. They would not have had these different factions within divisions within the church. They would not have thought that those who were married uh, or single were better than the other. No lack of love can ever lead right. And Paul makes it clear that love must be the attitude of, of a church member. That basically means selflessness. Selflessness. Knowledge, gifts, abilities, those are good. They're nice. I love being around biblically smart people. I love being around people who can teach me something. But there's something sweet about being around someone who knows nothing but honestly loves. That's impact. That's power. Now, you've heard me say ad nauseum that we are to be in the image of God. Back in John chapter 15 again, he says, These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. In other words, that you would show the world me. That you would abide in me. The church should be a mirror of Christ to this world. And when the world sees us loving one another, it should be a picture of the way Christ loved us. Think about this. Christ puts up with us, but he encourages us to improve. 
that ought to be something that we reveal as well. We put up with a lot, don't we? And we want the best. So it's not just putting up with them and just saying, okay, that's good. No, we desire improvement as well. He reveals truth to us, and he expects us to obey it. There's an expectation. That's love. Notice this one. He forgives and does not replay the wrong. What sin? It's cast from the east to the west. He does not rejoice when we fall, but he is happy to reveal the truth. He's the first one there with a hand. Come on. Let me help you back up. Now let me show you where you went wrong. And last, he comes and he shoulders our problems to help us. The love chapter explains how we can be with one another. We'll never get it right as a church until that becomes our life. We can start program after program, ministry after ministry, but if that part is not the hinge pin, nothing else will go right. So, what should the attitude of a church member be? I love you. Yeah, but what about, mm -hmm, I love them too. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, how in the world can you? Because Christ loves me. Well, how do you put up with? Christ puts up with me. Well, how do you forgive? Christ forgave me. How do you expect them to do better? Because Christ expects it of me. And week after week goes by, and I let him down again and again, and he says, do better, son. Do it better. So you really believe that about other people in the church? Mm Mm-hmm because Christ believes it of me. How are you with loving one another? We're good at ourselves, but we need to love as Christ loved. Father, I ask you, Lord, that you would Work in our hearts. Wake us up. Help us to be more concerned with showing others you. Teach us to love. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. have been listening to Andy Lake, Bible teacher with Grow in Liberty and pastor of Liberty Bible Church. We pray that you were challenged today and encourage you to share this message with your friends and family. If you were motivated in some way to grow in your walk with Christ, please drop us a line and reference the title of today's message. 
You can access us online at growinliberty.org. Email us at together at growinliberty.org or send us a letter to Liberty Bible Church, 2111 Sodom Hutchings Road, Vienna, Ohio, 44473. If you would like to support Grow in Liberty financially, you may also do that at growinliberty.org. Thank you so much for joining us today.